0: welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. The trend of higher education employees leaving their jobs before they have been offered another one is an undermentioned aspect of the great resignation. Whether the reasons could be due to caregiving for a family member or friend or the acceleration of wage growth in sectors outside of higher ed, it has highlighted a lack of pay, the work-life balance, and or growth opportunities, that is career paths, for those who work in college. Simply put, we have focused on that for our students, but we have done a really lousy job of mentoring and growing our employees. This is especially important to those who start as entry-level staff in academic advising, athletics, marketing, communications, along with events and promotions, and the media space who want to be able to rise through the organization. Simply put, credentials, entrepreneurship, and certificates are part of the workforce future in higher education and should be on the table today. My guests today work for a company that has produced some remarkable research in this area, calling attention to an opportunity for higher ed workplaces to focus on how to grow employees, not just hire them. Dr. Ruth Watkins is the president of Strata Impact, a part of the Strata Educational Network. She is the former president and provost at the University of Utah, a Pac-12 school. We are also joined by Dr. Courtney Macbeth, senior vice president and chief program officer for the Strata Education Network. Courtney was a soccer student athlete at the University of Utah. Both bring powerful expertise to a discussion that includes NIL, entrepreneurship, and the high turnover rate in athletic department employees. We also discussed the impact on the University of Utah's entrance into the Pac-12, what it means both from an institutional alignment perspective and from a career opportunity perspective for Utah student athletes. More info on Strata is available on the website. This is a great conversation. Ruth and Courtney, welcome to the podcast. I am so thrilled to have you both here. I know it's been a bit of a challenge to get everybody together at the same place and the same time, but you've done some amazing research, so welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Karen. What an honor
0: to be with you. Great to be with you, Dr. Weaver. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Estrada has been putting out some amazing research uh, and really uh, unique and valuable to the college sports and higher education space. So let's first talk about the great resignation um, release that you did in in mid mid to late September about workers struggling struggling with the job market, the transitions, what do they wanna do next, those kinds of things. What are some of the takeaways from that particular um, piece of research?
1: So Courtney. I can mention a couple and then yeah. I'll I'll say, Courtney, take it from there. Um, you know, certainly I think as we look at what has happened through the pandemic and this really unprecedented trend of people stepping away from jobs when they don't have another one on the other side, this is for a person like me, just impossible to understand like what, what is going on? I think there's no question that caregiving and sort of uncompensated roles that people play in terms of uh, their family members in particular has been a driving factor. I would also say we want for us at Strata, we're pretty interested in what it is that people are signaling about their interest in education and training beyond high school, that either they're not seeing trajectories and career in their current employment that they want to see, and or what would spur them to think about returning to education and training to better their career opportunities? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the really interesting work comes in and real opportunities to move ahead. And Courtney, let me ask you, what do you think about those trends and where would you see opportunity?
2: Well, what our Strata research shows is that the reasons for voluntary job changes, 18% of the American public said they wanted more opportunities to advance at work. So it was about this career trajectory and the desire to have more ability for career advancement. Then the next is 16% said they wanted an increase in pay. So, right, it's a hot labor market, there's competition for talent. So there's opportunity to change jobs to increase pay. Uh, Next at 13% was this notion of finding a better fit for my talents. And then at 11% shared that they were dissatisfied with their current job, the current field. And then 8% um, reported they wanted to reduce stress from their work. So this notion of I'm working too many hours, there's too much stress. And so that's where there's, um, you know, you can see interesting threads there, I think probably with healthcare and higher education and the massive need to adapt to to what was happening in COVID. Um, but, but certainly uh, a variety of sort of complex reasons why people are opting to voluntarily change jobs when they have one. And sometimes they actually don't have one and they go on the job market while the job market's been hot. Now, you know, as the economy's starting to cool, some of those trends change and, and something to consider.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for those who are familiar with college athletics, it's a 24-7, 365 kind of job where you're working year-round, and we've seen a lot of turnover from employees in that particular area. What kinds of things do you think that higher education in general, and maybe college athletics in particular, could do to try to address some of these trends?
2: You know, Karen, I thought about when we read some of these statistics and what a job in higher ed and particularly in athletics looks like, and that's right, it is a 24-7 job. um, Flexibility matters to people and the data show that both in terms of the um, work environment and, and flexibility with scheduling as well as with education actually, right? So for those that are thinking about educational opportunities, flexibility is paramount now and The pandemic really showed that we can have more flexibility than we originally thought so this notion you know in in the beginning of my career on a higher ed campus i was there eight to five no no questions asked and i that was direct service to students which was really critical to be there but in a world where students are part-time working part-time school and maybe it's better to actually have those counseling sessions at night or an academic advisor be available um, on weekends after student athletes have finished uh, a tournament, Uh, I think we have a lot more uh, ways that we can think innovatively around flexibility to ensure better service to student athletes and that we can maintain the talent that we need in college athletics. That's a good
0: point.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and I just kind of building on what Courtney's saying, um, having been for a long time in universities and a couple uh, in particular for a very long time, large research universities with big athletics programs, both at University of Illinois and Utah. One of the challenges I think for big institutions and keeping talent is we have roles and jobs that are very, very important. We don't always pay them very well. Let's take academic advisors. early career folks in fundraising, for example. And not only do we not compensate them for the incredible value that they provide to the institution, we often forget to help people see career trajectories and opportunities. So will I be an academic advisor at an early career stage for the rest of my academic career, or is there a path up? And so I think as we imagine, how could we do better Um, in athletics and with our staff that play such important roles, and across campuses, thinking about doing planful mentoring and career trajectory work with every member of the team is so important. And then probably also we need to build into our structures a pathway to advancement, so I might start as an assistant advisor, and ultimately become a senior advisor or an advising manager and coach or there's a there's a path where I am not looking at the rest of my career at this particular level, but I see a way to make a difference at a bigger scale in the institution.
0: That is such a great point, because so many people have wonderful experiences as undergraduates in college, and they think I'd like to stay here. I'd like to do other things. But then you accept a job and then you sort of feel like you're pigeonholed into that position, those skill sets, and you think, where else am I going to go? Plus, for years, as you said, we have underpaid, underappreciated these folks, and they have given their heart and soul Mm -hmm. uh, to us. So do you have any examples that you've noted in your research of schools that might be trying some different things in this area?
1: Um, Not particularly specific. I can talk about our own efforts and, you know, across my career in those two areas that I highlighted are areas where we had made some efforts and I will say that um, at Utah, the advising community themselves came forward and said, you know, we've done this, it was a, a fabulous thing of sort of grassroots effort of academic advisors coming together, forming kind of a council and saying, we've done an analysis and now we'd like to present to you. I think I was in the senior VP academic affairs provost chair at the time and they presented their findings. This was fabulous actually and their findings were the average academic advisor stays in their job 2.7 years. What are the cons and gets paid this amount? What are the consequences of that for this campus where you have a revolving door like an undergraduate isn't going to have the same advisor during their time because they're going to There's such a rotation of staff and for a person at that point as the chief academic officer, I'm thinking this is a huge issue for our student success, for retention and completion of our students, because this is such a dynamic effort and the only hope this community feels is that they either move to another college or find another job on campus or leave the institution entirely. So, you know, an effort in place to say, let's build a career trajectory. And I think there are um, institutions around the country who've done that in some critical positions. I I really think that for every um, aspiring academic leader out there, you wanna give thought to this in your institution. People need to see opportunity and a path. Um, And I think certainly the great resignation is showing us that this is an issue for corporate environments as well. Um, without a sense of there's a path for me here, people are constantly looking for a better opportunity elsewhere.
0: Courtney, is that your sense as well, particularly coming from um, the work that you've done in the past?
2: Yes, and I, and I would add, if we think about the Great Resignation research that we did at Strata, um, we've really tried to tease out this thread of employer provided training. So, if we think about higher ed, it's remarkable that higher ed, you know most institutions have a tuition discount and you're working on a campus where there's all sorts of additional education and training opportunities. So for Americans who quit their jobs and had voluntary job uh, changes in their jobs, they are most interested and likely to enroll and be interested in employer provided training. So I think that's a real opportunity for institutions like Ruth said to be more thoughtful about the career pathways for their existing employees. And then also being able to attract talent because of the employer um, provided assisted um, education that's there on the campus in the workplace. But it does take this really meaningful approach to career pathways and allowing people who Might be an academic advisor or in fundraising or in marketing and communications, um, student affairs, that there really are abilities and ways to pivot within higher ed to continue to contribute and grow your career and and find meaning and purpose in your work.
1: And Courtney, let me me build on that just a second and say, I think that's such an important asset that we in higher ed have that we probably have not maximized. And maybe a direction, I don't know what you think about this, Courtney, is not only to think about our traditional ways of focusing on degrees, but on certificates and short-term training that actually might be the most valuable for some of our our team member employees that want to build a new skill set and don't need to necessarily think about an entire baccalaureate degree. Because we tend to think... um, and I'm very guilty of this, that people should do what I did, like they should do this traditional kind of academic path. And for many people that are full-time employees and and busy with many out, obligations outside, a sh- short-term credential or certificate might be the boost that, that would really help them. Um, well, right. Absolutely.
0: great point um yeah in fact that's why i created the certificate at the university of pennsylvania called collegiate athletics for senior leaders here people were elevating to elevated to president or vice president or uh, directors of student affairs with athletics department oversight and they were like i don't know how to do this i don't even know where to start where would i have learned this yeah
1: where were you when i needed you
0: (laughs) I've heard that question a lot. So you know, we, we now you can do a certificate program that's over on uh, nine Tuesdays for three hours each Tuesday remotely. Learn with your colleagues around the country and get the most current information about you know what's happening in college athletics and how it applies to your institution. So that kind of micro credential, micro educational opportunity seems to be a no brainer for higher education institutions. Um, But I wanna circle back to something that, that you all talked about earlier, and that was the discussion around academic advisors. Those people play such a key role in just the, in some days, survival of the student on the campus, just trying to manage all of their expectations and responsibilities. What role do you see them playing in helping students, student athletes, determine their career paths, moving forward with opportunities, where to look, uh, career advisement, or have schools now completely separated that out and said academic advising is one thing, career advising is another?
1: My my personal take on that is there are many different ways to do it, and we should probably not try to think that there's one only one way. What we probably do want to go for is planful career Pathway planning needs to be early in the academic journey, not at the career center when you're a junior or senior and you and a small subset of the population finds their way in. Um, instead, one of the I think key findings of Strata's work and our research team is that career connections early and often through a variety of tools like internships and work-based learning really powerful agents of change for students. And in fact, if we want to serve effectively individuals who face the greatest barriers benefiting from post-secondary ed, we have to really rethink the role of kind of guidance toward career, thinking about jobs, employment, and what outcome a person can expect as one of our most central responsibilities with and for students from day one. Yes, it can be academic advisors that do it. You could create another cadre of co- career coaches. You need to build it in so you catch every student, not the subset who finds their way to help. Um, and I know Courtney has done a lot of work in these areas, uh, particularly around internships and work-based learning. But I think the I'd let let her talk a little bit about that and um, some of the thoughts about where higher ed has not been as effective as we could be in this particular area
2: so in leading uh, internship programs for 15 years and these were internships that were based locally around the institution and then nationally and globally they really are internships work-based learning are powerful agents of change particularly for first gen students women students of color who don't naturally have that social network to rely on. And the data show that that career connection really does change trajectory for students. So our data shows, you know, when controlling for race, gender, ethnicity, et cetera, students who did paid internships in their first job make about $3,000 more in that first job. So you think about the what that does for the earnings trajectory over their lifetime. It's really important. now. Offering quality internships at scale on campuses is really tricky, right? Because we're having to invest in mental health and academic advising and all of these other aspects around student success and coaching. Um, and then you have career services as well. So uh, what we're seeing with some of our grantees at Strata is universities becoming really uh, creative in saying no longer do internships and careers just live within the career service office in the corner of campus, but rather we need to think about career advising, career development and academic advising more holistically. And it's not just the academic advisor's job or the career services professional, but rather it's faculty's job, it's um, you know students working on campus with a mentor in campus rec. And sort of this broadening conception of the entire campus holding responsibility for thinking not only about the academic, but the career connections and how to help build those for students. And um, work-based learning and internships are really critical to that. And uh, we need to be thinking about, you know, quality, scale, access, and paid internships as being critical to delivering on that promise for students to set them up for a good first job both in terms of pay you know and helping them launch their career
0: great point in fact it's an area that i've been paying a fair amount of attention to in my research because um uh, one of the conversations that i've had with a number of folks particularly in division one is that division one athletes because they're so committed to their year-round practice and competitive opportunities that they simply do not have time to take an internship. And even if it's an internship, it's really not a full-fledged full-time internship lasting over more than a couple of weeks. And uh, you wonder, sometimes I think in athletics, we have said, well, just the fact that they played for University X should help them get a job. I'm not sure that's, that's flying anymore. And I think your emphasis on paid internships Mm -hmm. really is consistently demonstrated in the research that people say employers are trying to discern between candidates and they perceive that someone who was paid by another employer is actually more valuable than somebody who worked unpaid. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts for for folks in athletics who are really consuming the athlete's time over their four years then all of a sudden saying, okay, now go find a job. Ruth, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, there probably several different ways to go about this. And one of the points I wanna make, even as I answer that question about student athletes and the two of you are gonna know more about that living that life than I do. I certainly observed it close in personal and learned so much about the demands on student athletes in terms of their time. Um, I would say that even among student athletes, just like in the population at, in general, we ought to give some thought to the students who have faced very significant barriers and how we make sure that those students get to be first in line for the best experiences in internships and learning. So for example, what I know from you know many years of interacting with the Honors College and other things is I would meet students that had five internships during their undergraduate years And then many, the vast majority of students who had zero. And I started to think we must be very much more purposeful about the great resources we have in our institutions and not let that disproportionate consumption go to individuals whose parents pushed them into it, who know where to go, who have an advocate on campus. Instead, we need to say, who's first generation in this institution? Who's receiving a Pell Grant? Who really needs the pathway and would benefit most? Who's faced the greatest barriers? And probably in athletics, there's some of that variability, too. Um, There are a variety of ways that students can gain the benefits of a paid internship, whether it could be a job on campus where there's professional skills, and mentoring and association with it. So in a way, there's probably a category of experience, supported learning experience that we ought to think about what can student athletes do with the time they have, when during the course of a 12 month year, do they have the time to do it? Is there shorter term project-based learning that could cover some of that same um, Uh, learning opportunity and what about jobs, because many students will have jobs where they could have some professional skill um, work embedded. Maybe it's on campus in IT or in the library in a place where we can control a little bit the hours and the expectations. So I'd kind of say, um, you know, given the demands, particularly of Division one athletes, but I'm guessing it's probably true in other divisions, too, to think about what are we? What do students really gain from in a paid internship, and how could we replicate that for the students who have faced the greatest barriers? Right. Um, otherwise, we wind up perpetuating inequality with these things rather than addressing it.
0: Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe I'll give a little personal perspective here as a Division One soccer player. Uh, I was walking in a building called Osh, and I saw a flyer that said "Presidential Internship" on it. Apply here. And I just happened to see it and I applied and I thought there's no way in the world I'm gonna get this internship or how in the world am I going to balance the, the time and the demands here, but it's paid. So I, I need to do something that's paid. And if I'm gonna do anything outside of athletics and figure out how to fit it in, it's gotta be paid for my situation. And I ended up getting that internship in the office of the president, um, who at the time was Bernie Machen at the University of Utah. And he was a big proponent of female athletes. And through that experience, I was able to work on campus, work around practice and schedule, you know, class schedule. And I could fit in two hour chunks of the internship in between the demands. It was not easy, I will say. It's taught me how to be juggle uh, my life as a full-time mom and uh, career. Uh, But it absolutely changed the trajectory of my life because I then had access to, okay, here's what professional skills are. Here's how you operate in a professional environment. Here's a network of senior leaders in higher ed. And here are all the different career paths you can have and stay within higher ed. So that paid internship for me, which was on campus, which was hard to juggle everything, absolutely paved my career path for the rest of my life. And I often wonder, had I not stumbled upon that flyer and sort of had enough confidence to apply, like where where would I be now? So you start to think about how do we craft those types of experiences very intentionally for student athletes? Uh, Both, I would say in that career exploration phase, maybe freshman and sophomore year, and then how do you make those intentional connections to employers in the junior and senior year. And of course, now if there's any compliance folks on the listening to this, they start to get nervous, right? (laughs) What what about compliance and employers and all that? But the reality is we need to line students up in a much more intentional way and student athletes in particular with these project-based learning, with paid internships, with employers, and not to mention equip them with some entrepreneurial skills just given the dynamic of the future of work and NIL and otherwise. But I think we really do a disservice for our student athletes if we don't start thinking about intentional resources within the athletics department to set these student athletes up um, for career success. And maybe one example to think about is think of The treasure trove of careers and opportunities with student athlete alumni. So the intentional pairing and mentoring with um, mentors or, you know, alumni from across sports, depending on the field they're in and matching them up with current student athletes for mentor opportunities could be really powerful. It's
0: a great it's a great example. Uh, boy, how fortunate were you to stumble on that flyer you know that day that's really quite uh, remarkable. So let's build on the entrepreneurship discussion. We now have the world of names, image and likenesses. I my understanding from talking with a lot of folks on uh, you know, at the presidential level, when they meet the athletes, one of the first things the athletes ask them is prospective athletes is, what are you gonna to do to help make me money? What are you gonna to do to help me with my names, image and likenesses? And whereas as educators still trying to figure out what this landscape looks like, so we're sort of like, uh, I don't know. But this idea of turning it into an entrepreneurial work to me is exciting because that's that's kind of where our country is headed, you know, with new fresh ideas and trying to think things outside the box and work for yourself, create your own business. Ruth, do you have any thoughts on on how we could do a better job of helping all of our students become more entrepreneurial in thinking?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, of course, there are so many things I could say about this. (laughs) I'm going to try to keep it in the frame that that you just provided, Karen, because um, I would imagine, and this is not um, too much different than... Um, many other things that, you know, we're talking about, about students and trying to build in certain knowledge and skills that will really help students across a wide variety of majors develop the kind of life skills that will allow them to thrive. And I think if if that sort of work could be part of very early in the academic journey, that might combine sort of financial literacy and entrepreneurship principles for kind of ubiquitously available to students. I think that would be a reasonably good um, way to think about this, because what we're trying to do is help students develop the knowledge and skills that will carry them through life. And we would really like that to be very ubiquitous. We would like that to reach a lot of students. Now, to in order to do that, we're going to have to offer credit for it and we're going to have to build it into the curriculum. It can't be go do this extra thing. It's, there's got to be at least some floor level knowledge that we would want every student to have. And I think some thinking along those lines would probably be some of the best ways to do it. Now, we could certainly say there are some individuals that are going to have more opportunity to do this earlier and will need it sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do think there's some risk in the um, building a lot of things that uh, other people want to try to control for student athletes, for example, or make money off the student athlete making money, which, th- of course, that's entrepreneurship at its finest. But my guess is that whole thing is going to build up, right? There's, there's a whole corollary set of people. I just happened to watch something on TV last night where I could see these people that are kind of coaching students on these um, NIL a- areas. And I thought, yeah, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be this whole burst of entrepreneurial activities that see a way to make money off students making money. And that has a lot of risk in it from, from my view. So I think the better thing we can do is try to equip the students with as much of agency and knowledge for themselves and then make the best decisions they can, which I realize is going to be a challenge. So I don't know, Courtney, if you think about this from your own life as a student athlete, can you imagine if this had landed on you (laughs) 17 or 18 year old, like how you would have processed it or managed it?
2: Right, and I think it's maybe hard for us three, given our age and state to even imagine it because you know, I asked my 10 year old, what career paths do you wanna do? And one of them was a YouTuber. So I think we have to recognize that the student athletes coming in have yeah. have grown up in this world and it's part of culture and society and, and how they've been raised. Uh, so uh, this one I think is really important where we need to be seeking student athlete feedback and involving them in the process because I I fear that, most people in the administration, we just, it's really hard for us to understand. I, I want to sort of zoom out for a minute and think a little bit more philosophically because uh, I've str- I've struggled with NIL and just this path of individualism and very much coming from a, a, a world where we tried to instill public service and public good and contribution to community. Uh, In our strata research we've been working on fine tuning our surveys to have more of a community lens learning that students of color first gen their their journey to higher education is not about just themselves, but it's about their community and feeling the importance and the weight of their community and so. I've sort of wondered how that plays out with NIL, that this isn't just about their name, image and likeness, but this is about their abilities to succeed financially, to succeed academically and to make it through. And it is part of this broader weight of my family, my community is all looking to me and I need to succeed. So I think it's easy to, to, think about it in certain ways, and it, it is pretty complex and multidimensional. Um, ultimately, it is about equipping those student athletes with the ability to complete their degree and have a smooth transition into their career. So in my mind, it's how do we leverage the NIL to ensure that we help that happen? For a student athlete, and especially those who face the greatest barriers.
0: I think you're right. I think there's the tremendous amount of expectation around by families, by parents who've invested thousands of hours and maybe not a ton of money, but certainly have the expectation that now they can go to college, now they can make money and this is the time to reap those benefits. And that can put a tremendous amount of pressure on the athlete themselves when they're already trying to navigate a whole new style of life whole new level of play and and something that, you know, really becomes their identity on campus. Oh, you're an athlete that separates you in some ways from the rest of the campus. So I think that um, more understanding of that pressure that those athletes feel to not only perform in the classroom and on the court, but then perform in their NIL space could be really challenging um, about that. I-
2: I think that's so important Karen and having felt that pressure it is immense and what I fear is you know you only have a 10, 10 or 20 percent flexibility in your mental space or your timing I mean give or take whatever sport or what level of play you're at and so I fear that that NIL pressure and time and energy needed will take away from a student-athlete's ability to do a research opportunity with a faculty member or do a quality paid internship on campus and to really open up the door to other professional career paths. I think just thinking really granularly of like my own experience, I think that's one of my fears about NIL is it'll just take up that any bit of flex time that a student athlete could use for career exploration or development into, you know, making sure that their social media is solid and they can make more money.
0: And they get more likes and more clicks, you know, yeah. that, that, sort of that, a
2: short term versus yeah. a long term investment of that minimal flex time. Yeah. I,
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Let me shift gears uh, to one t- subject, which you all have done some research on, which is this idea of who's coming to college and the idea of who's actually that what, how they perceive the value of college and their likelihood to enroll. And just this morning, another article about the fall enrollment across the, across the country. And it looks like it's down a little bit in, in schools that accept 50% or more of their applicants. So what's the perception from Strata's perspective about this tension around, maybe we won't get students to choose college anymore. Maybe they'll choose to go right into the workforce for a variety of reasons.
1: Right, I think this is a really significant national issue, and the state of Indiana, for example, has about a 12 percentage point decline Mm -hmm. in students who are leaving high school and immediately going to some form of post-secondary and training, any form, certificate, two-year degree, four-year degree. When you imagine what that means for the talent base, the workforce of the future, the survival, and sort of healthy vibrancy of the state and the economy in our nation, it's, it should be scaring us all, even if it's not happening to you or your, your institution, right? Right now, it's disproportionately impacting um, the two-year institutions, for example, more than it is, or, or the regional four years, not the flagships. Flagships tend to be up in enrollment nationally. At the same time, this is all of us, and this is a pertinent issue for all of us, and it it really is, I think, urgent. So, then you say, well, what is the source of that? And there are a variety of possibilities. Certainly, we could say, well, it's really right now, jobs have increased their base wages. Of course, much of that's going to be consumed by inflation, right? It it looks better on the surface than it, it actually is. And then what happens to people's fulfillment and life goals and our own economy when there's not an educated workforce to fill crucial jobs for the future to drive a healthy economy? So what is it that's at the root of this? I think it, there's at least a reasonable hypothesis, and some of Strata's own data would support it, that without a sense of career Without a sense of what it, what can, outcome can I expect? Will there be a job on the other side of this? Will I have job security and fulfillment? Will I earn a living at this in this role? Our belief at Strata is those questions about what outcomes I can expect, and the uncertainty about those outcomes is part of what's keeping people on the sidelines.
2: Mm-hmm. So we've
1: got to do a better job. Many of our four-year institutions say, what, but we're not career and technical places. We don't do that. What we're, um, I think, really advocating is that, of course, we prepare people for life and we can help prepare them for their first job and we can help them find their way to their first job. So for higher ed, we should be thinking about both and not either or. And I think that that's what we would, would really say, that outcomes beyond completion, are what people are looking for. They want some certainty that there'll be a job on the other side. So what did I forget there, Courtney, that you might want to add to that?
2: Well, you hit it, the the, um, decisions to enroll or not to enroll in post-secondary education training are largely driven by these economic factors and career considerations. So the economic factors of, will this be worth the cost? college continues to become more expensive how much debt am i going to have on the other side and i don't even understand how much this is going to cost me because the the price tag versus what aid options i have is extremely difficult to navigate right particularly if you haven't or you don't have family who've gone to college so those economic concerns and then the career considerations right we offer so many degrees and certificates and just a plethora of options with maybe not very good coaching and career guidance to say, here are your options and here are average salary earnings. Here's how you can contribute to your community. So this, you know, declining perception and value in higher education is very much driving um, enrollment decisions and it is about economic and career considerations.
0: It makes total sense. And, and and we do see a number of concerning studies that are coming out talking about how many people are choosing to delay or postpone their enrollment. And I know that so many schools are tuition dependent, so they need to make sure they hit their numbers. And as I've talked about on this podcast before, athletics plays a crucial role in driving some of those numbers. So how we also address the career desires of that population is, is as important as, as what we do in the classroom. I really could not agree. I would be remiss if I did not ask each of you about um, your experiences at the University of Utah. Ruth, first, as as a president, as somebody who came in as a senior leader, right as Utah was moving into the Pac-12, what was that experience like for for your campus from your perspective? And then when you became a president, just navigating all of the things you had to learn about conference-wide leadership.
1: So one thing you don't know, Karen, is that I have this um, uh, wonderful partner, husband, Bob Young, who is like living with Sports Center. It's like a running tally at all times. So, and Courtney is laughing because Courtney knows Bob and it's so true. Like, so, you know, having uh, been with Bob since the 90s at, you know, the University of Illinois and um I learned a ton about athletics uh, all up through my career, both at home. And um, my first real leadership job was as the associate dean in, in what was the College of Applied Health Sciences at University of Illinois. And we had meant disproportionate number of the student athletes in uh, programs like kinesiology, community health, rec sport and tourism. So I had a, a really good growing into leadership role at the U of I campus where I interacted a lot with student athletes and even in the physical building where the dean's office was the wrestling program the volleyball program uh, kind of a famous building on that campus so a lot of front uh, front and center experiences um, that in Illinois had a a number of great programs where associate deans were, were quite connected with student athletes um, on campus so uh, good good preparation for becoming a, a senior VP academic Affairs Provost um, at Utah and I can tell you that I would never have gotten Bob to leave the Big Ten if if Utah had not been in the pac 12 <laughs> had it been Mountain West or something like that it would have been you know because for him like big visibility power five was was um that was top of mind for him. Um, And, uh, of course, the many, many wonderful things that athletics does for a college campus, and it's certainly a part of the student experience in such a powerful way. And so many people want to be connected to the university, and they know the university through athletics. So I know, too, what a powerful tool it is for fueling the academic uh, elements of of your work. Um, And, of course, it comes with complications and challenges. Um, but, an, but a whole lot of upside for talent in your student body, in your connections to the community, in um, ways that an institution makes a difference in society. So we try to be realistic about the challenges, but also um, recognize the many, many powerful, positive elements that come with a significant athletics program. And I, I think you want academic leaders to think about the institutions they're leading in that much more holistic way. And if that is not a value that you uh, can can f- advance, then you've got to think about what kind of institution you should join. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just say it's, because it's gonna be a significant part of your job as a leader, right? and you want to see and use the positives and the strengths of these remarkably talented people that make this possible for your institution. Now, Courtney lived through this transition uh, yeah. and a community member.
2: Well, and I, I would even back up as a student athlete, we changed from the WAC to the Mountain West Conference my freshman year when I came in. So of course, as a student, I was sad because we wouldn't be able to go to Hawaii to play Hawaii in the WAC. So that was my my uh, you know 18-year-old self. Now, when we shifted over to the Pac-12, my role at the university is I was negotiating um, and developing partnerships with employers. And these employers were government offices, businesses, nonprofits, and setting up internships. And we were trying to develop the cream of the crop internships and to be able to then change my pitch to the employer to, oh, we're the University of Utah, and this was in a global context, we're at the University of Utah, and we're in the same conference as Stanford, Washington, Oregon, it became a completely different conversation. So I very much appreciated. That's a very sort of specific and tangible example. But as a university administrator that was trying to set up the best possible internships for our students, I was able to open many more doors by being in the Pac-12 than, you know, in the Mountain West Conference. And Um, that was a great thing because we really were able to open up these magnificent internships across the country and the globe for students to be able to have, you know, life-changing opportunities.
1: Wow. And I must say too, you've got to say, what did that do for the University of Utah? Get the University of Utah in a peer group that really is at, has many aspirational elements for the academic and research operation and what a privilege for the University of Utah to be part of that.
2: And I would just add, I you know, Ruth built on that and her presidency to actually pivot and expand that to not just thinking regionally, but nationally. Mm-hmm. For the campus as a, within staff and faculty and also the broader community to say, our peer comparison set is national, not regional. And then that spilled over into research dollars and um, commercialization and tech. Uh, So there's a lot of spillover effect there that then the, the subsequent leaders, presidents were able to really build on for the institution.
0: Uh, Ruth, do you worry about this, the future of the PAC-12 at this point? I mean, USC and UCLA, it looked like they're going to be going to the Big Ten. Um, do you think that the conference uh, needs to uh, retain its allure by attracting some other uh, land-grant institutions? Or what do you think about that?
1: Right. Well, I imagine that there's some really bright, ambitious people working on that very question mm-hmm. and trying to say, Okay. What is the next phase here? And, you know, maybe maybe there's some creative new configurations that would really uh, be meaningful both for students, for the institutions. And um, what I see as an incredible opportunity for Utah and others is to do a little bit more of where I think the big ten has been the all stars. and in and now I'm not talking about athletics. I'm talking about academics. And I'm going to say, that what the Big Ten has done is create an academic alliance, the Big Ten Academic Alliance that works together. All the provost office contribute resources to a central academic alliance operation, and they work together on some strategic academic and research priorities in addition to everything they do together athletically. When you can combine that and leverage the power of large research universities in that way, talk about a difference maker for our nation. So what I hope happens is that spirit of institutional collaboration and camaraderie can be built around the athletic conference and the academic and research enterprise. Talk about a fabulous opportunity for the PAC-12 and whatever their future organization is, maybe a larger one that reaches coast to coast, you never know, and wouldn't that be great?
0: Fantastic, and the Big Ten has also done some work at the University of Pennsylvania in concussion and the military in concussion. So yeah, there's a lot of great academic, but you're right, the Big Ten Academic Alliance is just uh, an all-star, it really is. Courtney, Ruth, I really can't thank you both enough for giving us generously of your time, your expertise, sharing with us the great work that Strata is doing and the important nuances and how higher education moves forward at this time of great uncertainty and change, offering us solutions as well as really good things
2: to think about. So thank you both for joining us on the podcast. Karen, you are one of my favorite professors. So thank you. It's an honor to be on your podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for hosting this lively conversation. And we we look forward to listening in on your podcast now. Thanks. Excellent.
0: Sounds good. Thank you i